Today on the Free Thinking Podcast, we have Kate Willard, OBE, Chair of the Thames Estuary Growth Board and the Thames Estuary Envoy, spearheading action at an extraordinary scale. Hello, Kate. Thank you very much for joining us today. It's very kind of you. It's lovely to be with you. Lovely to be with you. I love conversations. Well, very good. Well, we have, well, I, have I have a few questions for you, as you know. And I think it, what I thought I'd do is I'd start big because I need you to help me, help the listeners, uh, listeners grasp the scale of the Thames Estuary Growth Board's remit, which is both, it's many, many partners I know, it's enormous geographical scale, but it's also long in terms of timeline. So could you help us dive into that? Yes, yeah, sure. So, the Thames Estuary Growth Board, just to give everybody a sense of where we are, um, the way I like to imagine where we are is if you're standing in the city and you've got your back to St Paul's Cathedral and you're looking east and then you kind of open your arms out into a great celebratory cone and imagine you can see as far as you can see, um, you would see to uh, on, off the end of your left arm um, the twinkling lights of South End and we go out that far in South Essex. And in the twinkling end of your right arm extended, it would extend out to Margate uh, in North Kent. And from your heart, leaping forward into this great abyss um, would be the river, the Thames River, which is the artery of our beautiful territory. We're about a thousand square miles, so it's quite big. Um, but obviously size isn't everything, is it? Um, and I also want to make this point that it is a place of exquisite beauty. You know, it has inspired everybody from, you know, bloody Dr. Feelgood to Canaletto. You know, it is a, a place of uh, Dickens, you know, it's a, uh, it was Dickens loved the estuary. It's, it's a place of grandeur, of, of beauty, and of pulsating life with the river through it. And also, if you look behind me, behind my back, behind St Paul's Cathedral, it's the beating heart of London, uh, the, one of the world's most iconic and extraordinary capital cities. So another way probably to see, and, and but again, and then let's look the other way, and that river, the Thames, delivers the most um, uh, extensive international reach for our entire nation. It reaches around the world. So the kind of the estuary is that place. It's it's like London, but where you can breathe too. Uh, and it's like the rest of the world, but the bit next to London. So our proximity to London is really important and very beautiful. Um, not because we are a a daughter or a poor cousin of London, but our proximity to that beautiful city is really important, as is our international reach. We uh, have about three and a half million people living across the estuary. And if you put that sort of geography and that scale, you can pretty much add Liverpool, Manchester, Leeds, Newcastle and Birmingham all together. And we are greater than them in terms of size. So it's a place of significance, a place of beauty, and a place which has um, a beating artery, beating blue artery of water. Right. And and that, I I can see it. I can see it then. That's palpable. So then help me imagine then the great expectations for this 
particular place as you move forward. I mean, I know in the past you've spoken to me about in order to make a change, you have to be fearless and you have to be dynamic. So tell me about the, the, the fearless yeah, ideas or opportunities for this huge space, place. I think that the, the, because it's quite big, and 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 it is the the the, the UK. I mean, I would say this wouldn't like some share of the board, but it is arguably the UK's most exciting and uh, growth growth uh, growth corridor and, and the place of the greatest potential for growth. And I think that the 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 the, the non-brave way to do this would be I'm trying not to be pejorative here, aren't I? But the non-brave way to do it would be to um, think about it a lot and to to consider options and to uh, and and to think about it a lot and then consider options and then perhaps we might think about it a little tiny bit more and then consider another option before we thought about it before considering another option or indeed the same option all over again um and i i have a slight frustration with that approach not because i don't believe that consideration isn't important but we had the growth commission the growth commission uh, completed their report government responded to the growth commission you know, that in itself took over two years um and and so my view is that it is the time for action, and I've, uh, I've I've held that view since since I was appointed at the back end of 2019. So I think the 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 the, the brave way forward, and and I'm not suggesting I'm alone in this for one moment, um, is to start to just you know get shit done. You know, let's let's think about the potential here, and let's think about what needs to be done. And uh, as I've just said, I I I, I, don't, I think that the the scale is 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 quite awesome, and and the growth potential is quite awesome. So we try and be very very specific uh, in terms of <clears throat> what we are trying to deliver and when. Because again, if 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 what I think about every day is 1.3 million jobs and a million homes, I'm going to deliver the square root of fuck all really, aren't I? Do you know what I mean? Because it's there's that's very very big, and and. You could never get there, could you, with that as just a, a single goal. So for me, it's around breaking it into in, into really clear uh, uh, deliverables. And by deliverables, I mean uh, us being able to evidence something that happened that was good, that was related to good green growth, and that really importantly wouldn't have happened without us. Um, we try and have two principles in our work, which is that one, anything that we do must, must um, make sense at an or add value at an estuary wide level. That doesn't mean that all of the projects are huge projects across the estuary. Um, but what we do must add value at an estuary wide level. Otherwise, probably it's somebody else's job. Probably it's a more local piece of work. Um, and the second thing is that um, what we do must genuinely be our job, not somebody else's job, because if we're doing somebody else's job, then one, that's irritating for them. Two, we're wasting our time. Three, blah, blah, blah. Everybody's wasting their time. So those two criteria, impact at estuary wide level, and it must be the job that kind of nobody else could do are, are those two really important criteria for us. Um, and we bring those two things together. Hydrogen, and we might talk about this a bit more in a minute, but hydrogen's a really good example. We need a hydrogen ecosystem across the estuary. It, it's too it's not something you could do at a local level you know hydrogen's strategy for canvey islands you know margate isn't really going to work it needs to be of scale there isn't anybody doing it there isn't you know the hydrogen delivery body for you know london and the southeast or something like that you know, so it's a natural fit for us nobody else is in the place to do it 
to drive that investment and that strategy. It's about it's a, it's across about the right geographical scale um, and and population scale and cluster and industry and business use scale. So that's a really good example of of, of how those things fit. But I think to go back to the sort of root of your question, which is about the sort of brave and fearless, I think brave and fearless um, is about making sure that uh, in part you are happy to be held to account. Yes. Because all very well and good, isn't it? Me going, yeah, or oh, we're the people that get done and la la la, we do this, bam, bam, you know. Um, but actually, unless I am prepared to be held to account, then that it, that's sort of meaningless, isn't it? Because it's like, oh yeah, Kate, she's great, she talks loads, but you know, don't get done. So I think, um, and and I I think my board are brave and courageous as well because what we are doing is laying out clear plans of what we're going to deliver. And we expect to be held to account for them. And I think I think that's important. And I suppose the other facet of bravery or courage or whatever you, 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 you might call it is that um, quite often um, people are resistant to change, aren't they? We don't like it, do we? Do you know what I mean? It's like you don't like your new pair of jeans, do you? Like your old pair of jeans, you know, anything from, from that level to, you know, big stuff, you know. We, we, we struggle, people struggle to change their coffee order. You know, it's like, oh, that's difficult. Um, so change on a kind of estuary wide level of like, right, we're going to change the way we, you know, fuel um, transport across the estuary. You know, that's quite a big change, isn't it? We're going to change the way uh, we view, uh, you know, how uh, communities are, you know, designed and developed, you know, potentially and arguably, you know, making those that much more of a bottom up approach than top down. People struggle with that because it's about real people, that real jobs, real change, real money, real change of who's getting the money, maybe stuff like that. And I think people, for all sorts of very normal reasons, are sometimes reluctant and resistant to change. Um, but again, where we think there is change to be made, we will work as we're not a delivery body, but we will work with our partners. We will work with um, collaborators, both locally, regionally, nationally and internationally to facilitate change and if there are blockers in the way of change which by everybody's agreement is desirous change meaningful change that people want to see <clears throat> that that's the point then then when i think that um i'm not afraid i'm not afraid of people who are being difficult or blocking or just arsy if they're standing in the way of something that really by everybody's acknowledgement should be happening and that's when I remember that I have got a big stick. I haven't really got a big stick, but um, I'm just not frightened of confronting people who are being difficult. Yeah, I can see that. And I mean, you don't speak like a bureaucrat, Kate. So how how? So much. <laughs> <laughs> so tell tell so about a bit about that journey for you, because I mean that thing about banging your heads together and being so accountable and not afraid to speak your mind and stand up and say I, I made a mistake. And we're going to move on and learn from it. Where did that come from? Where what what is your journey to this particular big job? I think one of the uh, things where I was incredibly lucky with was um, uh, my education. Uh, it, it, it was very I'm very lucky and uh, very fortunate in so much as I didn't really have one, um, and therefore it has never inhibited me. So I left school at seventeen. I don't have any qualifications, and I I think that that's um, I spent quite a lot of my sort of middle of my sort of early middle of my career thinking oh god I should get a degree or something 
or something or something like that because I was quite insecure because I didn't have any qualifications. Um, but I've actually see it as a huge strength because um, because I, I clearly, I'm, well, hopefully clearly, I'm not completely stupid, um, but I don't have a, a prescribed way of processing information or of assessing situations other than from a very human and a very instinctive um, position. And I'm pleased about that because I, you know, I try to be a kind of good person. I try to be an honourable person. I try to be, a, you know, all that sort of good. And therefore, I'm kind of OK. Is that that my sort of, you know, moral, ethical and human compass is the one that informs the way I look at the world of work. And I think that that's so I'm very happy with that. So I think that was a real, you know, tick box, uh, lucky Kate, no education. Um, and I think I've all been, also been really lucky to have had some really interesting experiences. So. In 1989, I was given a uh, Churchill Fellowship um, to travel to Hungary to uh, look at uh, youth community and educational theatre, actually. And it was a really transformational experience in my life. I spent a couple of months in Hungary, uh, which, as you'll well remember, was behind the Iron Curtain at that time. So it's fascinating and, and very interesting being there. Um, and that led to me in 1990 holding the largest ever gap, because what I saw in Hungary was extraordinary theatre, which we just weren't seeing in the West. And so I was working at the time, I was associate director at the Liverpool Playhouse. I went back to the Playhouse after this very, these couple of months in Hungary and said, oh, look, we should bring loads of theatre over from Central and Eastern Europe. It'd be brilliant. Yeah. And um, the uh, the board of the Playhouse Theatre at the time, the Liverpool Playhouse said, oh, that's marvellous, Kate. Of course you can do that. We have no money, but of course you can do that. Off you go like that. I think they thought I wouldn't do anything. Um, and I did. Um, uh, but it was really interesting because obviously... Well, the Iron Curtain was up, so it's incredibly difficult. I had to go back to Central Eastern Europe. I think I was smuggled across every border in the boot of a Trabant except Albania. And you, you, all you needed was 200 Marlborough. And that was like that was like your passport to anywhere, really. Super helpful. Um, so that was very interesting. And in, in uh, Easter of 1990 at the Liverpool Playhouse, we held the largest ever gathering in the world of Central and Eastern European theatre outside of Central and Eastern Europe. It's very interesting. Obviously, all these theatre companies turned up with their sort of in many instances with a kind of Soviet kind of minders. And it was all, uh, it was uh, it was very interesting. And, and some beautiful theatres and beautiful experiences and some beautiful friendships, which remain to this day. And I suppose that um, in terms of my own journey, you know, if I wanted to do that festival, which I did, there, there, there wasn't another way of doing it other than, you know, putting a clean pair of nicks and a toothbrush in a bag and, you know, borrowing, you know, a tenner to get a train fare down to somewhere and, and getting over to... Romania, I remember, yeah, Romania was all over the place. And it was very, very interesting. And I, again, a bit like Tickbox, no education, Tickbox, what a great experience. It was one of the happiest times of my life. And that festival is one of the proudest uh, of my achievements as well. But again, unless you were going to kind of get off your ass and do it yourself, it wasn't going to happen. And so I just think I've probably always had a slightly um, can do attitude it doesn't mean to say that I'm not wildly insecure like everybody else is you know what I mean but with a slightly can do attitude which I think um, for for big big stuff like the estuary is probably quite helpful yeah I can well imagine I mean I think I find it I think not having that prescribed way I think is, is fascinating because so much of what we talked about before I remember was you know the fact that you know strategy is all very well 
but it needs action. You know, it, 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 it can only be justified by actually what you do. And I know so much about what you're doing there is rather than getting lost in endless PDFs that speak of a vision, you're also going straight to particularly the private sector to get things moving. I'm interested in that and how you, how you shape those conversations because it doesn't strike me as the usual sort of local authority way of doing things, which is signing off a vision which takes an awfully long time and then being stuck in the idea that it's public funding first and everything else follows. And what if you could tell us a bit about that? Yeah, sure. So the first thing to say is, although I think I'm absolutely, you know, um, sort of all that, the kind of the, the, the strategy stuff and the data stuff, um, I, I do know it's important and particularly data. Uh, data is particularly important when it comes to things like levelling up, you know, that needs to be completely data rather than politically driven. But anyway, um, so and I have a fantastic team and a, and a wonderful board who support that. And again, with sort of local authorities, I they local authorities have their role to play within all of this and they also have incredibly complicated jobs to deliver but I think that our approach to investment and our slightly different approach to investment um, is uh, is I think going to be proved to be fruitful um, potentially not just in the estuary but into other growth areas in the UK as well which is that rather than starting with a concept and then um, presuming that the concept, so it, let's take hydrogen because it's a good example. So we know that the uh, the estuary needs a hydrogen ecosystem, but rather than thinking we need a hydrogen ecosystem, I know as a government-backed growth board, let's go straight to government and ask for a grant. Um, for me, as somebody who's worked predominantly in the private sector, um, that doesn't. Why would I? Why would I presume that the starting point is a grant? The starting point is what's the private sector interested in? What's the private sector investor interested in? And let's sort of coalesce and bring all that private sector investment together. And then let's go tell government the story. And if there's a gap that government needs to uh, invest in to trigger that private sector investment, that's fine. If there's something else that government needs to do to trigger that investment, I'll have that conversation with them. But they are they are our partner. But we will have the 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 end of the conversation with them not the beginning of the conversation what that does i think is it means that you're um inevitably going to minimize the cash ask of government because your focus is on securing the private sector investment first you're de-risking the government sector the government investment because you're you are already have bought to the table the private sector investment um but it also means i think that you are delivering a model for sustainable investment because we envisage that the growth board will itself become an investor over years. Um, and it means that you're then in a position through uh, effectively kind of top slicing investment proposals to deliver the core costs for the for the growth board. You're not looking for subsidy from government to deliver you as a regeneration slash growth body. So I think this model which we're developing, which is called the Strategic Investment Partner, so SIP, Strategic Investment Partner Model, and we're talking to government about that and, and indeed to other parts of the UK, um, I think it's a... Again, I don't think it's complicated. I'm not saying that, like, oh, look, Kate's invented something really, oh, well, that's different. It's just common sense. It's just common sense. Let's just start here and let's go to government with the gap rather than presuming that government is starting as the primary investor. Yeah, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And I think I can see that in terms of also then with those first hard conversations, rather than having a lot written down, you know, then it is, you know, you're beta testing it in the market first off, aren't you? And with every conversation you have, it becomes ever more honed and the model becomes ever more clear, I imagine. Absolutely. And it's, I, you, I think that's spot on. And as such, it becomes 
an iterative process with the private sector and the investors, and it becomes an iterative process with government. And that's a much more normal way to do business than that kind of very transactional filling in a grant application form at a moment in time or giving it because you wouldn't give an investor a single portal of opportunity and say, if you want to invest in hydrogen, you know, this is the cutoff date and this is the only way you can invest in hydrogen. You kind of nuance things, don't you? And you sort of uh, sort of you're agile within that conversation to make it work. And and therefore, that's that's what we are doing, I think, is, is just being agile, being uh, sort of intelligent, being flexible within those investment conversations, both with the private sector and government to deliver the best outcome. And, and again, that just seems to me like a common sense way to approach it. Yeah, well, it makes a lot of sense. I think your, your body language there, you know, because I know this is an audio thing, but, you know, all the circles you're drawing in the air suggests that this is a beta testing thing, isn't it? You know, you're testing and you're evaluating, you're improving. You know, this is this is the Toyota way. This is W. Edward Demings and the whole, you know, that that makes perfect sense to me. So tell me about a, a project then. So, you know, you've talked about, you know, real projects, real people, real jobs. You know, give, give us a, a, a cracking example of that, something you're, you're looking forward to. So I, I am going to return to hydrogen just because I think it's it's <laughs> it's just such a lovely example of something. Um, if we. So uh, it, it, you remember at the beginning I said, I, I want to be able to talk to you. Uh, maybe we'll have another conversation in a year's time. Hey, and I'll, you can hold me to account for all this. Um, but 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 if we hadn't, if, if we weren't here, so the Thames Estuary now has a hydrogen route map. It's got a map, a very, very clear, brilliantly produced, super intelligent. I can say all that because I didn't do it. Uh, route map for the estuary. The Thames estuary would not have a plan for hydrogen if, if it was not for the growth board. Yep. It would not. It would have some hydrogen projects, but it would not have an overall plan. And the individual projects, whilst important to deliver sustainable hydrogen across the estuary, you need to have effectively hydrogen at scale and clusters at scale. And therefore, you need a strategy. It's not one of those things that sort of um, exist tactically or, or on a site by site basis. So we have already delivered something which will underpin the delivery of the hydrogen ecosystem across the estuary. We have uh, and are in active uh, discussion with investors around um, that investment. And just to sort of be super clear about well, what does that actually bloody look like? Hydrogen kind of needs clusters. So it needs clusters where you can produce it, where you can store it and where you can use it effectively. So it's dealing with supply and demand and, and clusters of use and production. Um, you can transport hydrogen, but, but, but essentially kind of clusters where you can produce and use it, it are really, really helpful. Um, hydrogen, again, and uh, many of your listeners will know, has sort of different applications. Um, there's some great hydrogen work going on in Teesside, and we are obviously collaborating with our partners there. Another great uh, river uh, story there. Um, but the, the role for hydrogen in Teesside is interesting. That's essentially about the decarbonisation of, indus of industry. So that's about cleaning up all of those um, that is huge chemical plants around uh, in the Tees Valley and on, in Teesside. Um, in the estuary, the use of hydrogen is much, much more about transport. It's predominantly around HGVs. It's around um, water vessels as well, river vessels. But if you think about the number of HGVs, we've got many, many, many thousands of back to base HGVs who start their life in the estuary, who kind of go into London or go elsewhere and then go back to base. And that's perfect for hydrogen because you can fuel up at the end of the day. 
Um, and if you think about the sort of volume of lorries, so that so the measurement for that, I mean, there'll be all sorts of, you know, very important treasury green book measurement when we deliver the hygiene. But one of the ones I'm really looking forward to is actually how many trucks we take off the road, because you can actually measure that, you know, these number of trucks used to go past Betty's door. They don't anymore. Well, they do maybe, but maybe they're just super clean now because they're on hydrogen. Yeah. Now, obviously, there is, you know, rail needs a part in that will play a part in uh, freight uh, change and, and intermodality and multimodality, as will the river. But the notion that we might be able to green uh, our trucks is a really beautiful, super simple, super crystal clear thing that we will help to deliver, which wouldn't have happened if we weren't there. And it makes a meaningful difference because it's great IP, great jobs, great clean air. It's endless hydrogen, absolutely endless. And interestingly, if we go back to that SIP model, the investment model, what we need from government probably on hydrogen isn't a grant to do hydrogen, you know, build a fueling station or something like that. It's probably for them to invest in something we're called living labs, which is around prototyping for small scale hydrogen um, uh, technology producers um, where we will effectively imagine you've got a great idea for a hydrogen something. Um, we're going to give you a space where you can prototype it, where you can test it. And then we're going to introduce you to investors. What that will do is make sure that some of these brilliant hydrogen businesses, not only will they have a space to develop their business, to develop their products and their services, but they will also be able to secure investment. That's great for UK PLC because you're holding on to IP in the UK. And it's great for the estuary because it means more dynamic businesses, more jobs. And again, linking back into government policy, we will be making sure that those great jobs in that sector are absolutely accessible to all places around the estuary. So I'm just going to talk for one second about the government's levelling up agenda. And I'm not saying this because, you know, it's like a political thing. Levelling up is just actually about being really fair to people and making sure that communities and people and young people are not left behind. So if there's great jobs in hydrogen, we need to make absolutely sure that places um, where young people don't have access to good quality education and good quality skills, that they do have access. You know, it's that is really, really important to enable um, young people to kind of get out of, you know, generational poverty and 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 generations of not having jobs. And and whilst I can um, be quite sort of light and say that my lack of education uh, it was super helpful for me, which it was. My fundamental education was good and it was sound. Uh, and I was also not uh, I was not when I was a young person living in an area of poverty or deprivation. So I came from a position of privilege into that. So it's a very different uh, situation. And we need to recognize that and make sure that all of these things that we're doing around hydrogen, around waterborne freight, around digital, around creativity, around the freeport, really, really, really are fair and equitable. And by being fair and equitable, I don't just mean open to everybody, that don't work either. You need to go much further to make sure stuff is really open to everybody, really. Yeah, and that's where, I mean, that the point about the data you had earlier is going to be so important, isn't it? That with every single one of these elements, which, I mean, relates to what you were saying about getting 
done, whether it's a right fit that only you can do and the value at that scale, then you can also then the right fit is the thing that speaks about, you know, the particular demographic and psychographic of who you're working with. And the scale speaks about particular pockets along the estuary. And I mean, that's going to be fascinating watching that emerge when you think about your big umbrella projects and then what it means for each individual area. And, and so how long is this story we're talking about? I mean, the growth board, is there a particular checks and balances across the next decade? Well, what are we yeah, thinking there are. So, we're, I mean, I sort of as a general level, I'd expect to be held to account for, you know, development plans over on a yearly basis as a, as a minimum. The Growth Commission's report was to 2050. So effectively, if it's 2022 now, I've got another 28 years to go. Not just right. me. Obviously, um, but the plan is to 2050. So, uh, which which is nice because that's that's a nice long time frame to look over, um, and it obviously sort of transcends the sort of usual electoral cycles and things like that. So, yeah, we're through to our 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 kind of our horizon is 2050, and I, that for me that's a that's a nice horizon to have. And this has also been a long time coming, hasn't it? Because I remember you telling me that it was Michael Heseltine that kicked this off. What, what is that? Twenty years ago, are we talking about? 30 yeah, years? I think I think the estuary. Yeah, I mean, it, Michael Heseltine has always recognised the significance of you know what happened east of London, effectively from sort of you know Olympic Park Canary Wharf uh, onwards. Really, um, I think the issue has always been that well, there's been a number of things. The river, I think, conceptually and practically. Um, and in and in narrative, in fact, even in the Growth Commission's narrative, there was referred to as a barrier. So it's a barrier to collaboration between North Kent, East London and South Essex. And, and I think as we, we've been very uh, clear in articulating the river as being the connecting tissue, the artery, and the, the, the bringer together of things. And indeed, the, 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 certainly the artery for international reach, which was really important. Um, I think historically... There hasn't been a, a completely comprehensive political buy-in. Um, again, arguably because I think, you know, if you're talking about the, the the Thames Estuary in sort of, you know, conceptual terms, well, you know, my bus stop and my roundabout and my constituents are more important than that bloody conceptual malarkey they keep going on about about the Thames Estuary. And I suppose, therefore, the approach of well, we're going to get stuff done and we're going to articulate that to you and articulate the opportunity very clearly and how we're going to deliver it very clearly. I think once people see tangible benefit at scale, then it becomes more attractive, doesn't it? And I'm super, super proud of the fact that we've got really strong political buy-in across the estuary of all you know political uh, powers. Um, uh, and and that, that buy-in is incredibly important incredibly important i don't underestimate it and as i say i think we have it now because our politicians and our leaders uh, can sort of have take a look at the estuary and those who are on the growth board and say yeah sh we're getting sh done there is value in this this is not wasting my time there is value so uh, and long may that be the case yeah well very now tell me so maybe a last closing question from me really the the in terms of then you know, many people we've spoken to on this podcast have been talking about reigniting cities. And I wondered about, you know, so much of the multi-district collaboration and alignment that you're talking about here feels critical to this. And I really love the way you speak about, you know, essentially there's a driving narrative that is 
a massive repositioning from barrier to a place of connectivity that then gets down to the nitty gritty of what it might mean for the living lab or the haulier. And I'm, I'm interested in that in terms of if you had a word of advice for others who are looking to do multi-district projects like this, what might be a key word of advice, do you think, working for? Oh, I just, this isn't probably very, I just talk normal and get stuff done. I mean, Jesus, I, I still think that there is, we, the, and I know, you know, I kind of a danger of repeating myself again, but I think we, the, the, the real danger is that we get caught in some sort of conceptual vortex, you know, which just sucks the bloody lifeblood out of everything, you know, and, and, you know, how many times, I mean, you would have seen this a million times, you know, cities, you know, produce great visions for the future and our vision for Ipswich or, you know, oh, Nuneaton's way forward. And I don't know, whatever, you know, you see it. That's nothing wrong with Ipswich or Nuneaton. Obviously, they were just random places that came to mind. Um, but you see it, don't you? And and the focus, the focus of that leadership Manchester was different because they started with data and evidence, which is the right thing. But anyway, um, the the focus was, you know, one, it's consultant led and nothing wrong with consultants. I'm a consultant. You know what I mean? So I'm not dissing the whole of, you know, our race, as it were. Um, but, you know, a sort of, you know, a big piece of work commissioned by consultants who will never be held to account for it ever. Never got worried about bloody delivering it. You know, and and if a consultant comes in and says, oh, look, here's a great picture. You see how amazing Burnley will be in just the next three years if you only do this. You know, it's just all a bit sham, isn't it? It's a bit, you know, it's like bloody snake or something, isn't it? I, I just think it's I don't think growth and transformation is that bloody difficult. I think it, you, you just need to work out what needs to happen here. You know, most times if you ask someone in the bloody street, they'll tell you, you know, net zero, two ways forward here for the estuary, net zero commission, you know, in a quarter of a million piece of work from consultant next or ask Dave, who lives on the A13 in Dagenham, you know, Dave will tell you, get the f***ing trucks off the road and the consultancy report will tell you exactly the same, but it'd be a quarter of a million quid lighter in your bloody pocket. Again, not dissing consultants. I love consultants. I am a consultant. My point is just common sense and have normal, respectful conversations. Yeah, got it. I And I think, I, I wonder, it does strike me that so much of your, the fact, your theatre background, the live element, because you confront an audience, don't you? No matter what you've written, how much you've rehearsed, how much anybody's talking about it, until the lights go on, only then is it ever proven. And that kind of plan long-term, start now, the, the, the power of taking action is fundamental to everything you're talking about. It is. And I, I, you know, I forget, but I did. I, I trained as an actress, as a served an apprenticeship um, at the Theatre of Stratford East. So it was a very happy time. And, it, you know, you've got you've got to have um, I think you have to have a, a certain amount of balls to be a performer. You know, it is it you know, it's standing up on stage in front of people and either expecting them to laugh at you or laugh with you or cry or feel something that you're feeling. It's quite a big ask, isn't it, for people who don't know and you who've paid to see you. And and yeah, I think that that was probably something else I should have said and answer that other question about being brave. I'm not suggesting that actors are brave because they're all called lovies, aren't they? And it would be people would be wildly offensive if I said they were brave people. But you know, you just got you know, you've got to have a yeah. uh, a little bit of uh, you know, 
cojones haven't you to get out there and talk on stage that's right and to have a go well it's been an absolute delight to talk to you Kate and I think you know learned so much from that and I think particularly you know when you're talking about you know whether it's the things of great scale here or the nitty-gritty of it or just the kind of you know the importance of you know articulating it in a way as you say which is normal and straightforward and easy for people to comment on and converse with I think is fundamental to this so I would I great look forward to speaking to you in a year's time and seeing where you you've got to it's an extraordinary undertaking that you're involved in and I, I wish you all the very best it's a wonderful thing thank you. thank you so much it's been lovely speaking to you you're lovely to speak to it's been a lovely conversation and I'm sorry if I've repeated myself or waffled on but I've had a lovely time thank you and I'd love to speak to you again in a year's time thank you so much Kate thank you for listening to the free thinking podcast today do subscribe so you know when the next episodes are and do leave us a comment so we can get better and better. Thank you and see you soon.